All right, Ezra 6, and we're going to be in verse uh, 13 through 22. So, Father, in Jesus' name, as we turn to your word, we just remember and confess that we believe this to be inspired and infallible, the breath of God, our, our bread, Lord. And so we thank you for the gift of the word. We ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, today we're open to conviction. We're open to encouragement. Lord, if there are areas in our lives where we've partnered with the enemy or sin or the flesh, Lord, today we ask that you would just break that, sever that with the blade of your word. Lord, our hearts are open for surgery this morning. Lord, we know many have come discouraged, and so our hearts are open for a fresh breath and the power of the Spirit to fall upon us. We exalt you as the only worthy and holy being in the universe. You're so beautiful and wonderful, majestic and good. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Somebody say amen. Well, Eusebius was the first church historian. Well, the the first to give a solid attempt to give chronology of the history of the church. Eusebius, his... Church history isn't perfect. There's definitely areas, um, in particular, he's more focused on the, the East and the West, and there are things he doesn't catch, but is, is really helpful and fun to read. In his, in his eighth book, he records what's called the Diocletian um, persecution. And so Diocletian uh, came to power, and in the year 303, um, launched one of the fiercest campaigns to crush Christianity that the early church had yet seen. It was around the Easter season that Diocletian issued a decree that the churches should be burned. Now, Eusebius points out that previously the church had experienced a season of prosperity, and Eusebius actually says that they um, had become stale and lethargic, and that always happens when the church um, has peace. There's a temptation to fall into staleness. Um, but but notice that the churches actually had buildings at this season. And so the, one of the parts of the decree was that the church buildings should be burned. The scriptures should be destroyed. And anyone unwilling to sacrifice to idols should be imprisoned. And they should be killed if they refuse to a camp. It's, it's funny to us in our time in history to recognize that to the Roman Empire, Christians were persecuted for being atheist. Um, because in the, in the Greco-Roman worldview, peace and prosperity really came as the gods were appeased. And so they weren't really very particular upon which gods were worshipped. They really wanted them all to be appeased because they believed in this kind of pantheon, this polytheistic worldview. And so... Um, the Christians were called atheists because they would refuse to worship Zeus or, or Jupiter. They would they would refuse to participate uh, in making sure the gods were appeased, were essentially fed and happy, right? That was why they're bringing things to the temple, make sure the gods are fat and happy. Um, the Christians uh, believed that there, were one, there was only one god, um, and that was quite a problem. And so as Rome experienced controversy, as Rome experienced... Uh, these kind of hiccups in the in the society, and there are certain seasons where people would look to the Christians and say it's because they refuse 
to worship the gods because of those atheists. And so this is very much what's happening in the reign of Diocletian. Diocletian does some interesting things. He attempts to break the Roman Empire up into four different sections, creating this tetrarch system. Um, He's really trying to establish the uh, or rediscover the Roman strong arm empire um, that they read about and their ancestors led. And at this point in his life, he decides the Christians are the problem. So they establish this decree. Essentially, we're going to crush Christianity. Now, in Fox's book of martyrs, it tells of a particular martyr, a man named Sebastian. This was an interesting one. Sebastian was actually uh, an officer in the emperor's guard, which again shows that the Christians had relative peace before because Sebastian, as a Christian, was able to advance in the emperor's guard. But now all of the military men who are Christians are commanded to recant or they're going to um, be murdered. And so Sebastian refused to recant. And, and history tells us that Sebastian was um, surrounded by men with bows and arrows, and they, sh- they were essentially going to shoot him to death. And so they release a kind of plethora of arrows into Sebastian's body, and he lay there dying, The Roman uh, guards and officials left his body to die. But when the Christians came, he still had a pulse. And so the Christians nursed Sebastian's body back to life. And then Sebastian went back to confront the Roman government again to be beaten to death again. (laughs) So essentially experiences a martyr's death two times because the Christians nursed his body back to life. Don't nurse me back to life, okay? Just one's enough for me, okay? Um, and so Sebastian goes back, confronts his uh, his leadership, and confesses Christ again. They beat him to death. They throw his body into the sewers and say, the Christian, we're going to throw him in the sewers. The Christians aren't allowed to have his dead body. A Christian woman still manages to go and recover his body and to give him a proper death. Now, From a historical perspective, and Eusebius points this out, what's interesting about all of this is if you know history a little bit, we're talking about the year 303, and it's just 313 that Constantine signs the Edict of Milan, and Christianity is is declared legal. And so just 10 years later, Christianity is going to experience peace and rest. And 303, it feels like hell on earth. Right, The Roman government is the strongest government in the world in this period. They have influence and power. And, and what Diocletian says goes. And so when Diocletian says we're going to murder everybody, like that's that feels like hell, man. That feels like the church is about to be squashed and crushed. And they're watching literally, I'm, I'm trying to look for the number, there were, there were thousands, thousands of Christians martyred in this season. And so there's death and bloodshed everywhere. And it would be easy for the church to go, this is it, Rome is about to crush us. But just 10 years later, God will grip the heart of a man, Constantine. Now, there's lots of historical debate about whether or not Constantine was a real Christian or or if he ever truly converted. That's neither here nor there. Whatever he was, he certainly gave the Christians peace and allowed the church to prosper. So the, the era of slaughter, this decade of death, and kind of a, kind of like this, God just causes it to to break and to be washed away because the heart of the king is still in the hands of our God. And hell wants you to feel defeated and wants you to tremble and shake 
But 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 when God says so, it'll persecution breaks and the church has peace and rest. Now, as we're studying Ezra again, I, I just want to remind you of the context here. Um, my shoes untied, so if I trip and y'all laugh, ooh. Um, as we're talking about um, Ezra's recording of Zerubbabel and Yeshua the high priest working to rebuild the temple, remember that this is the first wave of what we would call post-exilic um, survivors, the first wave of Jews who left Babylon to come back to Jerusalem, and they're trying to rebuild the temple. They lay the foundation, and they're so excited. They worship, they celebrate. The temple is, the foundation is laid. They feel like there's going to be success, and then they experience persecution. Then they're mocked. The scripture says their plans are, uh, there are people bribing uh, workers to kind of mess up their plans. And the Bible says, Ezra tells us, that they become very afraid. And for over 10 years, they walk by, every day, they walk by the foundation of the temple. But no one dares start rebuilding again because they're terrified. They're totally terrified. So finally, God raises up two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai. And Zechariah and Haggai call Zerubbabel and Yeshua, lead these people to fulfill the call of God on their lives and rebuild the temple. And so the prophetic word breaks the fear, which often the prophetic word does, breaks the fear, and they muster up their courage and they start building again, building again, building again. But then come Persian officials who begin to ask, do you have permission to build? And so again, they're faced with fear. These Persian officials, at this point, um, Cyrus is no longer king, Darius is king. And Darius, with the swipe of his pen, could cancel their entire life work. With the swipe, swipe of his pen, with one decree, could tell these men, everything you've worked for must be torn down because I say so. And so they're constantly having to face fear and anxiety. But the scripture teaches us, that when God decrees, when the sovereign God of the universe calls forth, when a prophet declares the word of the Lord, his will comes to pass. And so what felt for over 10 years like fear and discouragement and fretting and nail biting, when God said so, the government they were afraid of actually became their protectors and their provision and Darius said, not only will you build this temple to Yahweh, I'll pay for it, and I'll make sure that if anyone tries to stop you, they're slaughtered. Because, because again, the hearts of kings are in the hands of our God. And, and it's easy to, to forget that we don't live by sight, but by faith. Which means that we live by the decree of God. What we, in faith, what we believe God to have spoken. What we believe God to be leading us to. God's word is the foundation of my confidence. Not what looks to be falling apart in the world. And so here we find these people for, for over 10 years. Walking by the foundation of the temple. Scared to death that if they ever tried to build again, they'd be murdered. And then one day, it's done. So today we're going to read the day that the temple is complete. That, I can't overemphasize, that, again, that this is their entire life work. 
This is now at this point in Jerusalem. They've been working on the temple for over 25 years, at least the foundation to the completion. Um, it's obviously there's these major errors of uh, major seasons where no one's building. But we're talking about the work of their life is to see this temple built. And today we're going to read um, the moment when it's complete. Verse 13 through 22. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tetaniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews, they built and prospered. They built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. That's a beautiful line of scripture. They built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the house was finished on the third day in the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. Then by Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. Verse 16, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread Seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Our text today essentially breaks up into three paragraphs. The first paragraph tells us that the temple was completed, which again, we're talking about 70 years of being burned to the ground. Right, So um, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem, destroys Solomon's temple, which would have been glorious and beautiful, like beyond your wildest dreams. Nebuchadnezzar burned it to the ground, took the vessels from the house of God to Babylon, and desecrated the most holy place that Israel had ever experienced. And then, and then after 70 years, Cyrus rose, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, and decreed that these Jews should return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So there's a 70-year period that it's burned to the ground. After some time, they get the foundation laid. And then we're talking about another 20 years before the temple is ever complete. So realistically, close to 100 years from the burning of the temple to the recompletion of the temple. And so that's a big deal. You're talking about lifespans, right? Like... Um, People living their whole life with this hope to see the house of God restored. With this, again, we can't overemphasize the sense in which the temple is not just, uh, it doesn't carry the same, it's not comparable to a, to a church building, 
right? Um, if, if this church building was burned to the ground, we would file a fat insurance claim, right? We'd build us a new one. Um, but it's not, not quite the same, the same issue. The temple is the one place uh, that's supposed to hold the Holy of Holies. And so it's a really, really big deal. It's, it's their ethnic heritage. It's the center of their cultural worship. And so now it's finally complete. Verse 14 to 15 of our text in the first paragraph which tells us the temple is complete. It tells us that they finished their building by decree of God of Israel. That God issued the order in the heavens that the temple should be rebuilt. And once God issued that order, then all of the Babylonian and Persian kings, Medo-Persian kings, had to obey. Because the decree of God is sovereign above all things. And so... um, Very much the text wants you to hear this. God decreed. So Cyrus decreed and Darius decreed and Artaxerxes decreed. And the prophets now, the the elders and and, and Joshua and, um, and Zerubbabel, they prospered through the prophesying of the prophets. What are the prophets prophesying? Essentially, the decree of God, that God has commanded that you build, that God has declared that there will be a temple in this place again, that God has called you to prosper, to pick up your hands and to work. And so here we find the prophets echoing the decree of heaven and the people working diligently with understanding that it doesn't matter what they see with their eyes. What matters is what they hear from the word of the Lord. And you have to live that way because the New Testament commands it of you. That you live by the word of the Lord. Every word that comes from his mouth. And you are required to not shake in your boots, to not bite your nails, to not look at the success of culture and go, Oh no, they're perverting our children. Culture's over-sexualized. There's demonic influence. All of that is true. But the decree of God is that the nations of this world will become the nations of our God. The decree of Scripture is that on the last day, there will be a great harvest. And yes, the Scriptures speak to a great falling away. The Scriptures say that as the last day come, there will be um, God-haters and people who love money and who embrace all kinds of sexuality. The Scripture absolutely says that. The Scripture also absolutely says that there will be a great ingathering of souls. And so both of those things are true. The light is growing in light as the dark is growing in darkness. I've got to participate in the prophecy that says there will be millions of souls who come to love Jesus. And I cling to that. I work towards that. I I allow that word of God to be the strength of my life. I build. I serve. I believe. I refuse to quit because God has decreed. And as, shoot, y'all are going to get me off. Y'all are trying to get me off. And shame on you. Shame, shame, shame. As, um, as people who, who do not embrace necessarily um, the, the, the Calvinistic concept of determination, right? Like we don't, we, I don't hold a worldview that believes in meticulous determination. I don't believe that God has ordained every minute detail of history and that, that we're all kind of computers outputting what has been inputted. I don't believe in that kind of determination. Um, we don't, as a church, believe in that kind of determinism. But what happens 
is as people who don't believe in determinism, sometimes we swing to the other side and we think that God doesn't even know how things are going to end. That, that, and, and, and that idea uh, is, would be called open theism or the idea that um, God is kind of hoping that we participate, that God, uh, you know, everyone has free will. And so we, we better make sure our free will participates with God's plans or everything's going to fall apart. I don't believe that for a moment. I don't believe in meticulous determinism, but I do believe in the sovereignty of God. And God has the absolute right and ability to interrupt history whenever he wants. And so God will have his way. Hallelujah. So the first paragraph tells us the temple was finished because God said so. And, and I would say, Jesus said, I will build my church the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church will prosper in every age because Jesus said so. And culture may hate us, spit on us, throw stones at us. That's all good and well. But souls will come to know Jesus. Jesus be, will be worshipped. Families will disciple their children and reach their neighbors. We can be mocked, belittled, beheaded. The church will prosper because God says so. So first, the temple will be complete. Second paragraph tells us that they dedicated the temple. Now, this is a moment of great joy. Um, the, it tells us that they, they celebrated, sacrifices were made. This is going to echo the day that Solomon dedicated the temple and the glory of the Lord filled with, with thousands of sacrifices. It tells us here that the priests are set up in their divisions. The Levites are working according to the law of Moses. And so not only is the temple dedicated, but the temple is officially Open for business, if that makes sense. And the scripture says that as the temple is open for business, the people are filled with joy. From here, it's impossible, absolutely impossible, to not recognize the fact that worship and joy are forever interwoven. That you were created, we were created in the Garden of Eden to, to know God in worship, in union, to be overwhelmed by His majesty and glory as His Spirit and His glory fills the temple. You were created to be... The, 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 the aspect of your life which creates fulfillment is called awe. You were created to experience awe. And as we experience awe, when we stand before God and we go, He is far beyond anything we ever expected. He is better. And I, I think that's, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I think that's one of the beauties of the cross. You look at the cross and you go, what beauty, right? Like, like what, what beautiful surrender, humility, perfect love in Christ Jesus. And all I can do is go, oh man, and joy rushes in my inner being and I worship. And that it would be called union. That is what we are created for. And as the temple is reopened, the scripture says they're filled with joy. I think of the psalmist saying, my soul longs and even faints for the courts of the Lord. The psalmists are going to continually talk about thirst as a deer pants for water. So I thirst for you. And all of these ideas were connected to coming to the house of God with the people of God and experiencing his glory and worshiping and finding fulfillment and satisfaction as heaven and earth collide. So the temple is built. The temple is opened. And the third paragraph, I think, is the pinnacle of the entire text up to this point. Passover is celebrated. The narrative ends with 
Passover, points towards Passover. Verse 20 through 21, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples and of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. You can't, you, you can't overemphasize the fact that Passover was always about Jesus. Passover looks back, obviously, to the first Passover when the lamb uh, was killed and the blood was put on the doorpost so that the angel of death passed over the families who painted their doorposts with blood to, to, to show the forgiveness and atonement and mercy of God on those who cling to the blood. Yes, it was a looking back to Moses, but it was always a looking forward to the Lamb of God which would be slain for the sins of the world. And so as the people, their life work is done. And they celebrate with joy, right? They're filled with awe. God leads them to the slaughtering of the lamb. And there they look at the blood flow. There they, they hear the bleeding of, of many sheep coming to be sacrificed. And they worship, remembering their deliverance from Egypt. But I think it's very clear in history. I think they're looking towards Isaiah's uh, suffering servant. I think they're looking towards Messiah. Zechariah, who again is one of the prophets who um, is influential in this era, said that um, on the last day, speaking for the Lord, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Zechariah prophesies that there would be a pierced one who would be the God of the universe. And so... This entire narrative, all the demonic resistance, all the persecution, all the frustration and the anxiety, all the world and hell pushing back against them. It's actually been pushing back against the moment in which Passover is celebrated, the ideas of Passover. And we remember, as we conclude this, this narrative, that It was always about Jesus, and it will always be about Jesus. And everything the church does should be about Jesus. The decree of God that they're celebrating a paragraph ago was always about Jesus. Their life work, you could have a real interesting conversation about a theology of work here. Their life's effort, their sweat, they're pushing and struggling was always about Jesus, about the cross. It was not about their ego or redeeming their own sense of identity or worth. It was always to point to the blood of the lamb. And there we, we slide into these concepts of like everything, everything we do as a church, sure, everything we do as a church should point our community to the cross. Because the cross is the greatest moment of all, where we see the beauty of Jesus. And the cross, of course, is the place of atonement, where we're washed for our sins, and union with God is restored. And so everything we do has to be Jesus-centered, Jesus-centric, and about the cross. And now that's very easy to articulate, 
but a lot more difficult to execute. Because you and I have flesh. And whether you're willing to acknowledge this truth or not, you struggle with selfishness. We struggle with ego. And on one hand, it's easy to say churches had the simplest vision for Jesus to be glorified. And the same stroke, I think churches experience the most demonic resistance. And it's so easy. It's all over the news today to see churches who began saying, we want Jesus to be known and who ended up going, we want to be seen as successful. And the moment a church leaves the place of everything we do is about the shed blood of the lamb and they cross to the place of everything we do is about our name or our brand or looking successful to our community. You've slid into the flesh and, and that is the playground of the demonic. And that's where you see men fall and struggle. And from here, like, I'm sorry, I'm just taking you down some lines of logic here. From here, if, if everything we do must be about the blood of Jesus and exalting Christ, and if our work it's truly, think of Adam and Eve, right? Their commission to spread the garden, right? Spread, be fruitful and multiply. Um, as they sin, God provides atonement. But the mission originally was that the world would have union with God, fellowship and intimacy with God. And the church picks up that mantle and we're working for the day when the garden is reestablished in New Jerusalem, when the nations become the nation. Nations of this world become the nations of our God and souls find that awe in God fulfillment. And so if it was always about, our lives were always about Jesus being exalted and union with heaven and earth being restored because of his sacrifice and blood, that means it requires of you as a Christian, you redefine in your life what is success. You're required. And the, the, the concept of the secular and the holy somehow being separated in the life of a Christian is garbage. God purchased you on the cross. He purchased all of you. He purchased your work life. He didn't just purchase you on Sunday morning. Okay, your business ethics, the way that you do business, is it ultimately and finally about exalting Christ Jesus? Or is it ultimately and finally about being seen as successful, making more money than the next, poking out your chest around your family, look how prosperous I am, or has the the purchasing really seep through to every facet of your life. And one of the hardest things to do is to come to the place where Jesus, you know, we, we, we preach forgiveness and we should, by God, we should preach forgiveness. We preach the love of God and we should, we really should probably preach it more. But there's this theme, the Lordship of Christ, that we don't preach at all. And that theme, the Lordship, actually means, you ready for this? He's your Lord. <laughs> Imagine that, right? <laughs> Like your life's not about you. And so if I've been purchased, I have a master who is wonderful and beautiful. But I have a master who bought me with the shedding of his own blood. And he says that all of my life should be about the gospel, about seeing Jesus exalted and the earth come to know the beauty and the holiness of God. If that's who I am, I cannot then go to work and belittle my employees I can't go to work and participate in businesses, practices that are illegal or immoral. I can't, I can't delineate, say, this part of my life is for God, but the, the bulk of my hours are really about me being successful and thriving. And you could take that theme to the corners of your life, man. You're, you're, 
I'm looking like kids should be in kids' church, right? If you talk about your sex life, is Jesus really Lord there? Or, or do you go home and participate in whatever brings you pleasure on the internet or, right? Like if, what, I'm, what I'm building with my life, my home life, our culture greatly devalues home life, by the way. Um, it may be the greatest work of your life is if you're a parent, what you do with your children. Um, that's your first place of ministry, period. What I'm building in my kids, is it about Jesus? Your work life, what you're building, is it about Jesus? Serving people, modeling the gospel, what we're building here as a church, is it really for the cross? Or are we self-centered and filled with ego? Because some of us are so full of ourselves that we can never be full of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to require... It is, the, the, the gospel requires death. It just does. The death is beautiful. But it still hurts. <laughs> it's going to require the Christian life to really be lived will require you to pick up your cross and say, God, all of my selfish ambition, all of the desires of my flesh, today, Lord, I ask that you crucify them. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would put to death my flesh so that Christ Jesus may live through me. And so that my neighbors and my coworkers and the work of my life would exalt you and you alone. You cannot live for yourself. You don't belong to yourself. The world is not revolving around you. If your world revolves around you, you've got a major problem. Come see Brad. He'll help you work that out. <laughs> so... They're building, their life work is to build this temple, and it's about worship, right? They're building the temple so that Israel can come and be caught up in the awe moment, in the glory of God. And the pinnacle of their worship is going to be bloodshed. And the bloodshed of the Lamb was about union with God being restored, sins being forgiven, the goodness and the beauty of God being known, and, and heaven and earth colliding again. And if that's not what we're about. We're in trouble. Worship team, come for me. I'm going to talk to him blue in the face. I'll pay you $4 to come tie my shoe. Cold, hard cash. No, I'm just kidding. I'll get it. I'm just kidding. I'll get it. Don't do it. <laughs> I don't have four dollars. Big money girls on trees around here. You can go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. One of the words this morning, the prophetic words that came forth. Um was that there is sometimes a pollution in our stream, if that makes sense. There's, sometimes our, our streams become polluted. Our life, our, our, our motives, there can be a partnering with hell, a partnering with the enemy. I, I always say, you can't pray, God, let your kingdom come and then walk out and live like hell. That's kind of counterproductive. Um, so this morning... I know this maybe is a very deep place in our hearts that is intimate. 
But I want to ask the worship team to sing. I want to ask you just to lift your hands in worship. And, and I want to pray the prayer of David. God, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. I want to pray. I want to ask God, Lord, if there's anything in our church's plans or us as a community, the things we're trying to do, if it in any way is about ego or flesh or dishonors you, today we want to petition God, today purge us of the flesh. Today sift us like wheat. Today, let the fire of God fall on us and purify us. I think that's a crucial theme of the New Testament. It's when you come to that place and say, my life is a sacrifice. It's only there that you can have the fire of God. You can have adrenaline and what seems like a gifting without coming there. But you can't have the real fire of God until you pray. You have all of me. Let's start there. We'll, We'll go some other places, but let's start there. Holy Spirit, sift us this morning. open your hands. I want you to just pray, God, search my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lord, purify me. Holy Spirit, we want all of you, all of your work, and we recognize that some of that work is putting to death our flesh, convicting us of sin. And so this morning, Lord, we want your gifts. We want healing and the power of the Spirit. But right now we ask, Lord, for the the power of the Spirit to crucify our flesh again, to purify our desires again. Come on. In my marriage, may it all be about Jesus. feel the just the conviction of the spirit or like the Lord's pricking you at all, I want to ask you just to come to the altar and kneel and we're just going to kind of respond to that pricking by saying, God, coming to the altar sometimes imagery of um, I'm putting my life back on the altar. I'm rededicating myself as a sacrifice. So if you in any way sense the spirit pricking you, I want to ask you to come now.
Come on, one more time. If you're struggling with sickness at all in your body, there are a couple words that came forward this morning. That someone's struggling with an issue in their left hand, issues to swallow. If you've had any diagnosis that you want prayer for, I want to ask you to come as we continue to minister. The scripture teaches plainly that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That there's not an individual here who will stand before God on the last day and be received by God because of their own efforts or works or ability to perform. Um, the scripture teaches that none of us perform, that we've all fallen. And so if you're here this morning, maybe you're just stumbled in here, somebody drug you here, and you would say, I'm not a Christian, I don't really get what it's about. What it's about is this. Our world is broken, sick, oppressed, diseased, because we are without God. The Bible teaches that the only way for us to be restored to fellowship and communion with God it's by the blood of Jesus or, or by forgiveness being offered on the basis of a sacrifice. And so our sins, we're guilty. We deserve punishment and judgment. Jesus on the cross, he wore the judgment for you. The scripture teaches that all of your sins, all of your anger, sexual sins, your bitterness, your frustration, you could say, Caleb, I'm a liar, thief, adulterer, that all of that can be forgiven today, not because you can jump high enough, but because Jesus on the cross bore your sin and shame. Your punishment can be totally done away with today. If you would come, confess Christ Jesus as your Lord, turn from your old life, cling to him in faith, the Bible teaches that any man in Christ, any man who comes to Jesus is a new creation, totally clean. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you, don't leave this place without getting right with God. If you experience judgment on the last day, you stand before God and you're cast off, it will not be because you're an adulterer. It will not be because you're a murderer even. It'll be because you denied Jesus' offer. So don't deny him this morning. If that's you, I want to ask you to come. Seth, sing it for us one more time and we'll, we'll get ready to close. Come on, if you need minister, come. Jesus, you deserve praise. Worthy is your name. Worthy is your name. holy God. There's none like you. No one stands beside you. Come on, as we close, I want you to take five seconds and just begin to confess his beauty.
Jesus, you are so wonderful. You are gracious and merciful, perfect. All of your attributes are lovely. We love you, we love you, we love you. You're precious to us. You're precious to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Let every saint say amen. Amen. Well, hey, we love you more than you know. We're so thankful that you worship with us this morning. If you need ministry, we're not going to close the altar, so you can still come. We'd love to pray for you before you go. We pray you have a wonderful week. Y'all go get somebody saved. Go pray for somebody. We love you, church.